Welcome back, Brown Girls. I'm Ashanti Dolar, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Welcome to another episode of Season 5 of the podcast. This episode is all about women of color on the ballot and the power of our voice and our vote. This year is the centennial of the women's suffrage movement, which saw the 19th Amendment ratified to the Constitution, giving women the right to vote. It took George Washington six years to rectify men's grievances by war, but it took 72 years to establish women's rights by law. But we know it only granted some women the right to vote. Black, brown, and indigenous women's right to vote came in 1965 and after. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola by policemen, highway patrolmen, and they only allowed two of us in to take the literacy test at the time. This has had a direct result on women of color's representation in government. 2020 is another year where Black, Brown, and Indigenous women are running and leading organizations all over the country to better our communities. Glenda Carr is the CEO and co-founder of Higher Heights for America, the national movement to grow Black women's political power from the voting booth to elected office. Lynn Wynn is political director of Run AAPI. Run AAPI is an organization that strives to give Asian American Pacific Islanders better representation and discusses the importance of AAPI voting. And today we're diving into women of color that are on the ballot and also what candidates and campaigns need to be doing better to reach out to Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. We have Glenda Carr, the co-founder and president of Higher Heights. So if you listen to our episode before this with state's attorney Aisha Brayboy, she was wearing her Black Women Lead shirt. So that shirt comes from Higher Heights. And we have Lynn Nguyen, the political director for Run AAPI, a new initiative that just out of the gates gained so much attention and is doing wonderful work. And I can't wait to dive into talking to her about the amazing things that they're doing. But in typical BGG fashion, we have to start off the conversation by talking about how our brown girls got involved in politics. So Lynn, let's start with you. What made you want to do this work? I met you when you were on Senator Booker's presidential race. Lynn worked with one of my best friends, Tamia Booker, who is the political director. We just immediately had that energy. I appreciate y'all for letting me even on here. I think what's so, I just want to start, it's it's always such a, a struggle for us, like Asian women thinking, okay, if this is a space for black and brown women, do we do we belong? You know, us as organizers in this space, like we we challenge ourselves on that every single day. I appreciate that y'all see us as part of this fight. I do. Um, no, my start in politics, it, it was in high school. Um, I had to fulfill my community service hours. Uh, so I, I like I volunteered for my local mayor's race. 
obviously had no idea what organizing was, what it meant to talk to voters. Um, and it wasn't until uh, college when I was organizing around the divestment movement. And I was like, oh shit, okay, so this is what this is. Um, but I think what's really interesting is that it's, I think for me, because I get asked that a lot, especially with like the next generation of organizers coming in. And it's it wasn't so much like what what started this interest, but it's been, especially in the last few years, it's been the the women around me that have kept me in it, you know? And it's like, it's it's, I think we often feel so burnt out in this process, um, but it has absolutely been like this network, this like very intentional network of women that have kept me here, so. And we will go to Glenda, and it's weird for me, y'all, not to see Glenda two or three times a month. That's how often we would just see each other at different events, conferences, and even when we get on the phone, I'm like, it's my Glenda. I'm like, I miss you so much. But I'm super excited to have her here today. Higher Heights, it's an organization that I've been involved with for a long time now. It's an organization that I give a lot of my time, my coins as well, because that's important. So Glenda, tell us what brought you to this work. You know, I come from a politically active family. I mean, I don't think they overtly would call themselves that, but others did, right? And so I am, um, you know, a daughter of uh, a Caribbean immigrant uh, migrated here. My mother picked him up next door, literally, like, who's this guy next door? And, you know, dated, got married and um, had three children and I'm the baby. Uh, and my father was a community activist, right? And here's a man that didn't become a citizen until the later part of his life because he wanted to vote for his friend, Joe Lieberman. And, um, but everybody assumed like he was like, he was the political, like Caribbean political maker uh, in uh, the community about making sure people registered to vote. He was very active and, and so was my mother. On my um, 18th birthday, um, I'm sure my parents gave me a jewelry because that's what they gave me at every birthday. Don't remember what it was, didn't, don't know where it is, but they registered me to vote. My mother put me in her car, drove me down to City Hall and registered me to vote. And until the day she died, she called me and my brothers on major elections to make sure we um, voted. So it was just kind of ingrained uh, around our civic, civic engagement. Um, but I thought I was going to be a musician, uh, went to music conservatory and was politically engaged on campus as we all are, particularly if you go to a predominantly white college, there's always some takeover. I was in co college during the Rodney King verdict and my parents instilled in me, brought me to my like student leadership and my political leadership on campus. Um, and Working full time was just by happenstance, right? I volunteered for a campaign when I moved to New York for now the uh, a state senator, Kevin Parker, um, who has since become one of my best friends and somehow became a volunteer because my brother thought that would be a great way for me to meet people. So I was raising money for him and then became a super volunteer. And then he invited me to, um, you know, consider being his uh, chief of staff. So spent six years in the state legislature as a chief of staff um, of a New York state senator and um, then did some advocacy work. And so I was just sharing with an, a reporter earlier. They were like, oh, tell us why you started Higher Heights and what was the landscape? I was like, Kim and I was having, we were having coffee and venting like we do as girlfriends. Like, I'm tired of seeing rooms full of white people you know, in caucusing with the three other people of color, not even the three other black women, the three other people of color. And we were like, we should start our own thing. And literally we wrote the name Higher Heights down. So it wasn't a whole grand scheme of things. It was over coffee, like we often do, um, talking about how we can make democracy better. And I've never 
heard that part about you wanting to be a musician. So I found out something new about you, but I totally resonated with your mother giving you the voter registration form. I have two younger brothers and they always tell everyone that was my gift to them when they turned 18. I gave them a voter registration form and the older of the two, when he's really in the mood to mess with me, he tells everyone, yeah, my first word was Democrat. Like that's how involved my sister was with politics and she loved them. I was like, leave me alone. I do want to continue our conversation. We know this year we commemorated the 100 years in the 19th Amendment, which only gave some women the right to vote. It did not apply to black, brown and indigenous women. It was really 1965 and after that we were able to fully have political participation when it came to voting. And we know that has a direct correlation to the numbers of women of color that we see in office today. Despite the fact that we're entering or we're in another cycle with a record number of women of color running. So keeping with you, Glenda, tell us about Higher Heights work to really elevate the voices of Black women in particular when it comes to political leadership and elected leadership and why that is so important in this election cycle. So, I mean, when Kimberly and I kind of wrote the words Higher Heights down for the first time, it was the notion, how do we actually use our political power to expand our elected leadership and use that power, obviously, to change the, at the end of the day, the circumstances of our family, friends, and neighbors, right? Black women, like all women, we want economically thriving, educated, healthy, and safe communities. And because we work in politics and policy, we, you know, that all all roads, to be able to do that, all roads ends back on policymaking, which is tied to politics um, and our elected leadership. And so we knew, we, we, we developed a blueprint, but at the end of the day, um, Kamala Harris said this to us in 2018, did you know you were gonna build an organization for us a time as this? that we were building the political home um, um, that would help to recruit, train, and support Black women to run for office, but frankly, give Black women a space to be informed and engaged and to take action. And that is from the entry point of registering to vote, to voting, to you know, advocating on the issues as citizens, to thinking about running for office and governing. And so our work, it believes that when you have diverse decision-making tables, they make better decisions. Um, and that Black women are uniquely positioned to um, strengthen that decision-making table, both because of our qualifications that we bring to those tables, but our lived experiences. And so I usually answer this question, um, Ashanti, with an example. So in 2018, we helped to elect the largest number of Black women to serve in Congress on the 50th anniversary of Shirley Chisholm being elected um, to that body for the first as the first Black woman. And so although we celebrated that we elected these amazing Black women, we also elected a nurse a teacher, a city council member, a state legislator who is a Somalian refugee and a mother of a, a, a young black boy that was killed by gun violence that was racially motivated. You then enter 2020, these that these five black women in particular, though, you know, during a global pandemic, we have a health professional sitting at, at that table um, while parents are grappling with how do we educate our children remotely and ensure that every child has access to broadband and technology during this time. You have not only a teacher, the 2016 teacher of the year sitting at that table. And as you know, in this like second phase, 2.5 phase of COVID-19, we're going to see the strain of our city governments and our state governments as it relates to budget 
shortfalls and having to make, you know, budget priorities and some budget cuts that you now have a, you know, a local legislator and a state legislator sitting at that decision making tables. And then at the end of the day, we're grappling with systemic racism and police brutality and gun violence. And you have a woman who is the closest to that pain um, sitting at the table um, and having, you know, her having her peers have to answer to her around how do we create sensible gun violence and um, structural changes around our criminal justice system. So glad to have those women at the table. And Linda, with you talking about the racial injustice, just the hatred. We know that our API community, they've also experienced a lot of that this year with COVID and particularly how Trump has fueled that with calling it the China virus and pivoting to Lynn. It was just so important during that time that we had so many API elected officials that were able to speak out. So it also ties to why we need to have particularly the voices of women in these communities at the table during times like this. I mean, Judy Chu was just out there 100% saying, let me tell you what you're not about to do. So I want to get your take on everything. Yeah, this is this has just been such a, a trying election year in, in just so many nuanced in so many complex ways and for so many different communities. And I think what's been most interesting, I, we, we, I've had so many of these conversations in different like Asian American circles and that I think for like the first time, like our community actually coalesced around like one single issue, right? And it was like over the summer when COVID-19 was such a visceral thing for so many of us um, that the anti-Asian violence, the hate, the xenophobia, the, the racism became like one talking point that we could go home to our kitchen table and have that conversation with our parents or with our relatives. And it wouldn't be such like a politically charged conversation. We like it, it would really have a center the idea of, okay, what are we not doing to protect ourselves and protect our people? And I've, I've, I've never had that conversation when it comes to uh, uh, the electoral side of things, when we're, we're, we're trying to mobilize Asian American voters behind a candidate, behind a single issue. But this became such a, such a critical summer, you know, for what it means to be Asian American. And I think that's, and it's, it's, I love that you mentioned Representative Judy Chu, because also at the same time, we have a representative Grace Meng, you know, over in, in New York. She, and she's just had my back in the work that we've been doing with, with mobilizing Asian American voters, specifically for women. Um, and she, she just, she mentioned this the other day to, and it was to NBC News, in that we're, we're in a really difficult space as Asian American women where we can't go to the Democratic Party and say, okay, y'all, you know, like in order for us to win, you know, and I'm here in Texas where there's such a, a, a palpable population here, you know, ready to exercise their rights, but we're just not at that point where we can go to the party and say, okay, we y'all cannot win without us, you know? And so we're we're in this space where, and especially for for our giants like Judy Chu and Grace Meng, like they, they're really holding it down for us, but we're still fighting for visibility, you know? And whether it's in politics, it's in entertainment, it's in creative, it's in the arts industry, but, um, we're, we're still fighting for like the very basic representation in this space. And that's kind of why like run API, like we launched the new campaign just a couple of weeks ago. And, and yet there were, there was so many different, so many different groups within like the API umbrella that were coming to us and saying, holy shit, like I've, I've never like seen a video like this before, or like our storytelling hasn't been done like this before. Right. And whether they were 
first generation, second generation, whether they've been, you know, 30 plus year immigrants here in this country. But it was, I, I feel like there are times when we're fighting for crumbs for the Asian American community. We keep it real on this podcast. And even yeah. with Black women, Glenda and I, we've had this conversation. We've had this conversation with so many of the other women who work in this space that even with Black women, with our turnout levels, they still feel that we can be ignored. They still feel that they can give us crumbs. So let's talk about that and why we need to stop having our party take our votes for granted. I know just even during the summer with the election heating up, something I saw all the time was people tweeting like, black women are gonna save us. And I'm like, you're on your couch tweeting that. What are you going to do to help save yourself? Why are you putting this on black women? And then there's the other part of me that's like, you're tweeting this, but you're also probably going to get on your Zoom call for work the next day and be disrespectful to the women of color that you work with. So it seems that even despite all of these gains, we're still fighting for recognition. So black women are like, it's one of my favorite quotes, like, Fannie Lou Hamer, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? Uh, we just, um, our C3 organization, Higher Heights Leadership Fund, just put out um, some um, research. We um, talked to 506, we, we did an online survey of 506 likely Black women voters. And what came out of that was that there is a sense of anxiety around this election cycle uh, and the outcome. Um, Gen Xers, which is what I am, <laughs> is actually the ones that are most um, concerned about the uncertainty and the anxiety. Um, and so I certainly feel that. And so I feel that everyday women and then the women that work in this space, like Ashanti, myself and others, that it feels that there is this undue pressure that people have put on us. Um, it is not that we're a reliable democratic voter and that we're a reliable voter for a particular candidate. We're issue candidate. We're issue voters, um, right? And we believe that we are putting forth candidates who oftentimes don't talk to us, right? Don't get a piece of mail. Um, we're, the fact that they know we're going to do what we do, and we are. And, and on top of it, we're the best return on a voting investment because we don't go to the polls alone. Um, what's different this year that I see with my friends, what I see with the, the, the women that we work with, is that we're demanding our return on our voting investment. Like we can't be the people that are saving democracy and then be at the at bottom of every economic and health and so, um, social um, indicator in this country, that we shouldn't be dying at 25 of a heart attack. We shouldn't, um, you know, overwhelmingly ha um, be dealing with mental, you know, mental illness and suicide, like all these things that are tied to a variety of policy issues, but yet and still we are building the table. Um, and so I'm so excited about all the Black women that are running who are like snatching that table back in a way that is not only going to transform Black women and our families, but but the whole nation. Rep. Liz Miranda, she posted a graphic on her Twitter and it said, Black women can't be your shield and your target. I felt that. That still stays with me. And Lynn, you talked a little bit about Run API, but tell us more about why it was founded, how you got involved, and the work that it's doing. And y'all definitely have to go check out the videos that they have because these are some good videos. 
and I like Ashanti, like, you know, this, like my, my background has always just been going campaign to campaign, candidate to candidate. Like Houston has been my home the last uh, three years now, which is like, this is the longest time I've ever been in one state, one city. Cause I've, I've just had this like, incredible privilege of, of being able to travel and be very selective with who I get to work for. Um, but I like, y'all know, this It's just, we are just so limited on the campaign side. And so after Super Tuesday, um, I think it was signaled very clear to us early on that, okay, like the Asian American vote was just going to be likely an afterthought, right, for Democrats. And we're, we're so lucky to have that visibility with Kamala Harris, you know, being on the ticket. Um, but at the same time, like I'm sure like y'all remember, like when, when Joe Biden had finally announced Kamala as his running mate, I think it was like every other headline just completely erased her her biracial identity as a black and Asian woman, right? And so like there were a number of of uh, community leaders and elected officials that that kind of had to step forward and say, "Hey, y'all, like this is this is like wildly inaccurate reporting." And again, it just erases us from from this place and and really erasing our political power. And so and that's why like with with Run API, you know, we knew that one, and we did this poll just a couple of weeks ago on, on younger Asian American voters. The biggest factor with Asian American women voters is that they just weren't motivated in this year, period. There was like, so there was no motivational factor. And this is like 18 to 34 year olds. Uh, we had uh, uh, polling done a number of battleground states where like the API community could be like the ultimate deciders should they choose to to do this. So that like for us, like our our dynamics, I feel is like so, so I don't want to say it's it's so far behind, but we're we're fight. We're almost like in a fight for different for, like our bars just set so low, I think is what I'm trying to say, you know, and like what's what was so interesting looks like the last example I'll say, because I just have to stop shitting on Democrats. Um, I'm, I'm really big on accountability in this space, um, but the, it was most recent. I think this again was like a week ago. And, you know, the, the Joe Biden campaign on their Instagram feed, like directly on their grid, they posted an image of a Vietnamese American woman. She's actually here in Houston. I know the family of her holding a son as a vote for Biden. It was like such a power, the, the visuals were so powerful. But for us to have that one square little space on his IG grid, we've never been showcased like that before. You know, and let alone having like a placard that re that was in language in Vietnamese, that that one image that went viral within our community. And that woman, she's like this. She's a first time Democratic voter here in Houston. I know her daughter really well because she's also just getting involved for the first time this year. And yet it's like it's sometimes it takes so little visibility, so little effort, you know, to really excite us and, and to feel like, holy shit. OK, so like, I, we do have a place here or we are like the record, like they do recognize that they, they also want us part of this. So it's, yeah, it's this, this year has been a struggle. And I will say like the, the real solidarity that we've seen, you know, especially with my generation and, and like progressive Asian Americans is a solidarity of our black and brown sisters, <laughs> you know, who it's, and it's been so it's, it's like an unwritten feeling, you know, that, that, that kind of sisterhood is just there. And it's like, and y'all know this, but it's just, it's just indescribable. We know we have so many great women who are on the ballot November 3rd. Whoever wants to start, tell us what are some of the races that our listeners should be watching? Who do we think are going to be the breakout stars that we're going to be talking about on November 4th? 
I would start with um, how I uh, describe the freshman five, right? And it's the types of women that are running um, that is inspiring for me. So we have a army veteran who retired as a lieutenant, right? Who's an educator in local city, a local elected official in 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 the state that I currently call home, New York, right? Jackie Gordon. Um, we have moms running, right? And moms of young children. Um, research, you know, historically pointed to that women usually run um, when their children are older. Um, and so what we've seen over the last couple of cycles are um, women running with young families, right? And being able to juggle that. Um, and so Candace Venezuela will not only be the first Afro-Latina <laughs> to be elected from technically like Texas. Um, that is like transformative about what type of, you know, what type of voices you will continue to have in Washington. Um, we thought, you know, like Lauren Underwood was the youngest black woman to run. And now we, like she's got like Ray Timms, who is exactly the type of young professional you want to come back to your to to the hometown. Here's, you know, a young lady who went, worked on the Hill, decided to go back home, right, to run for office. Uh, and she's what, 32? <laughs> I feel like an auntie, she's young. Joyce Elliott in Arkansas, right? Um, and so not only are you gonna see black women increasing their elected leadership, you're gonna see what types of the, continuing to see the diversity of the types of districts that we're coming from in what types of states. So Arkansas, right? Um, she'd obviously be the first <laughs> African-American woman from Arkansas, um, but was a state legislator. Um, and then I'll just leave with my, my one last one about um, stepping into the moment is a Patricia um, Timmons Goodson, um, who is a former judge and not just a judge of one bench, but on multiple benches. There's a, I, I can go on because there's a record number. Who else do you want to talk about? Those in particular around the, their backgrounds, I think are very interesting and inspiring because um, research from the Center for American Women in Politics points to role modeling effects. So the more women see themselves in the women that are running, the more diversity of thought, diversity of background and lived experiences will be the next bench of women running um, next year and, and beyond. Lynn, who are some of the candidates that are exciting you? I mean, like, Glenda, like you hit all of all of like the most exciting women that I've been watching too, especially Candace here in, in Texas. But I think what's what was so interesting to me is that I think what, a number of these districts that were never deemed flippable or could possibly be like a democratic leading district is is now in that case is now like within the margin of victory and i i truly believe it is because of the women that have stepped up and chosen to run right and like women of color like the lived experiences that they bring and i think what was so brilliant and like candace did this really well in a primary like the runoff election became such a nationalized runoff election here in texas but i i think that's it's the storytelling, their presence, what they chose to present themselves to voters, like that is so uniquely for black and brown women. Like that is, that's so uniquely theirs, right? And I think that's like why it's sparking such a unique interest from voters watching what's happening, whether they're running for Congress, running for the local city council, running for judge. It's that, that element I feel like is so much more palpable this year than in any previous years. Right. Like it's yeah. wild. like living in Texas, it's wild to think how many of these congressional seats one Asian American women are running or black Latinas are running in and they're they're now considered flippable. Right. Everyone is watching and pouring money into these races. And, and I want to attribute women to that. These are great candidates that people are excited to vote for. 
And we know the presidency is on the top of the ballot, but I tell everyone, it's these down ballot races that are also really gonna turn people out because they wanna make sure that they get in these candidates as well. We're in the final days of the election. Let's close out. Each of you tell our listeners how they can support your work and get engaged in the final days of this election, but beyond, because we know we got to keep this going, particularly as we continue to build up the political power of brown girls. Democracy doesn't begin and end on election day. In fact, it begins. Um, And so although we are concerned about when the elections will be called, from the presidential to local elections, know that the work continues to be an active member of this democracy. Um, and so, you know, if you are looking to be part of a political home centering Black women, um, and uh, just like my grandmother, Kimberly and I <laughs> made a house and a table big enough for everyone. Um, and so, although we center Black women in our issues and our leadership, Um, It takes everyone. Um, And so, you know, we welcome you to be part of the political home um, and help us to expand Black women's political voices. Um, And we've got just a little over a week uh, to help Black women lead at the polls and at the ballot. And so you can phone bank with us, you can text, you can, you know, Ashanti rocks all of our live streams. So if you want to just hear from Black women's thought leadership, you know, um, join, uh, become a membership-based organization. All it takes is a click. So go to higherheightsforamerica.org and um, learn more about the work we're doing. And at the end of the day, we need to invest in Black women. And so we need to open up our pocketbooks and our wallets. Um, And so to not only support organizations, um, but also to support candidates. And so I would I would challenge everyone that's listening or watching to, you know, write one more, make one more contribution to a candidate that inspires you, at least one. And if you've not ever written a political check or you haven't wrote, written a political, this is where I'm auntie check. If you've clicked through <laughs> uh, and made a contribution, consider making a political budget for the next week and a half. And so it is also just, you know, making a commitment that I'm going to do an hour or two hours or four hours and volunteer with an organization or a candidate that inspires you and make phone calls and um, text and to uplift them on social media so that your network will know who these amazing women are. And close us out. After that pitch, I have a line item that says political donations. So every month, I know I have this much money that I'm giving out to people. You got to make it a part of just everyday habits. Okay, so with, with Run API, it's, it's, we're in such a unique place with us doing the storytelling that no other group is doing for young Asian American people. And that's that's like our bottom line is that we're, we have been, a lot of us have been waiting for some kind of cultural shift, right, for Asians and whether that's in the political space and the entertainment space, um, but that that is where Run API exists. So what I would love for our listeners, if y'all could follow us on Instagram, on on Twitter at Run API, um, that is where you're going to find a lot of the whether it's content, um, whether it's showcasing a lot of the Asian American talent coming from the creative industry, you know, and being able to really amplify a lot of what's happening on the ground. So we we are double downing in uh, Georgia. And in Texas for the rest of the cycle, uh, we were uh, contacting voters last night where our co-founders of Run API, we taught them how to text bank for the first time. (laughs) 
But like, that's where a lot of people are at this year. You know, like a lot of yes. people are just starting to jump in and that's like totally, totally okay. Um, and so we'll be having a couple more event activations uh, specifically for people who have never been political, period. So I would love for everyone to follow us on, on our social media accounts. And we will have the information for Run API and Higher Heights in the show notes. So y'all can go and get involved. Glenda, Lynn, thank you both for joining us today, sharing your knowledge. I appreciate you giving us your time during this busy season. And I'm just so thankful that I get to do this work with both of you. Really, just really appreciate you both. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. Please take the time to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcast. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, check us out at www.thebgguide.com and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The BG Guide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them at wondermedianetwork.com. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. Until next time, Brown Girls.